0: Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits and joining me are my hosts.
1: Hi, this is Paul Reesmandell. Hello, everybody. Erica Klein here.
0: Today on the show, we're going to talk about podcasting. Podcasting is increasingly being taken up by people in academia for myriad reasons. Some professors are looking for ways to share their work. Others use it as a research tool some include it as a part of their teaching practice, while others seek to include podcasting as an official part of their scholarly output. We'll dig into these ideas on today's show with our guest, Hannah McGregor, who is assistant professor of publishing at Simon Fraser University and co-director of Amplify Podcast Network. A podcaster herself, she is co-creator of the feminist Harry Potter podcast called Witch Please, and also the creator of the podcast Secret Feminist Agenda. Thank you for joining us, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me. So Hannah, I I was very intrigued that you are in the field of publishing, mm-hmm. um, but you're dealing a lot with podcasting. So maybe if we could start with you explaining how publishing and podcasting are connected.
2: Yeah, I mean, as is typical for me with a lot of my career moves, I realized that publishing and podcasting had a lot to do with each other in a sort of backwards order, which is to say that I started off as an English literature scholar. That's what I have my PhD in. I was doing a postdoc in English literature when I started making Witch Please, my first podcast. And I didn't realize that podcasting was a really interesting subject to look at from a publishing perspective until I applied for a job in publishing studies. (laughs) And you do this thing when you're on the academic job market where whatever the field the job is in, you just kind of convincingly invent a way that your work fits into it. And so I kind of convincingly was like podcasting, that's a publishing thing, right? And it probably wasn't until about a year into my job at Simon Fraser University that I actually really realized that what I do is publishing studies, and that that is actually a correct categorization for my work.
1: Can you explain uh, publishing studies? I've been in and around academia for way too long, and this is, this is a new one on me actually. What, what, what defines publishing studies?
2: It was new for me as well. So I I learned it over the process. I've been here for four years now. And so I think I have a fairly good grasp on it. Uh, It's an interdiscipline, which is part of what makes it confusing. So there are people who work in publishing studies who look at the history of the book and who are interested in the sort of emergence of the book as a technology and then their gradual emergence of a kind of uh, industrial infrastructure around book creation, right? How do we start to turn books from um this weird one off idea that gutenberg has that he ends up going bankrupt and and dying unknown
3: and erased the, by history the, the book as the startup the failed startup
2: failed startup is exactly what the first printing project was right his uh his his co-director um Fust, johannes Fust, got all the copies of the first printed Bibles and uh, started traveling around selling them as manuscripts until people got suspicious of the fact that they looked too similar to each other. So how do you get from that, you know, somebody selling manuscript copies of the Bible out of the back of a wagon to this sort of mature industrial model of publishing as an industry, as a sort of cultural industry with a particular kind of logic to it. So on the one hand, you've got people studying that history, studying the present of it, trying to understand it. You also have, in that field, people studying scholarly publishing, so specifically looking at how do scholars communicate our knowledge, um, people looking at open access publishing, and then people looking at me, looking, sorry, people like me looking at non-traditional forms of scholarly publishing and trying to imagine how we can expand the notion of what constitutes
0: scholarly knowledge production. So, so what, that's, oh. that's one way in for me. So what is, like you mentioned, uh, traditional scholarly publishing? What is that? Uh, You know, because a lot of people might, maybe they're outside of the world of academia, and they might not even know what scholarly publishing is.
2: Yeah, this is one of my always one of my favorite lessons in like my undergraduate publishing courses. We're also to take them through the different pieces of the publishing industry. And we get to academia, and I'm like, You know, buckle up, you're in for a wild ride. It is truly a bizarre industry. So, what's important to understand about scholarly publishing is that academics are expected to publish as part of our jobs. And so, you know, there's the old truism in academia publish or perish. You've got to be producing research and you've got to be getting it out in the world somehow. And the expectation is that that research will be peer reviewed, which means that it has to be published in a scholarly journal or published by a university press, because those are the platforms that have, you know, the infrastructure in place to peer review work.
3: Because and Hannah, it is expected Hannah, to be you part quickly, of our. Hannah, H- can you quickly, describe yeah. to um to a radio audience that doesn't know about how academic life works, very quickly, what does peer review mean? Absolutely, peer review is a process by
2: which other experts in your field read your work and evaluate it prior to it being published, so that we can ensure that there is minimum bias um, and develop consensus within particular areas of research. So you
3: can't just make stuff up. And I'm excited about that. We're gonna. We're, I don't want to sidetrack us from the, the the thought that we're on, but I'm excited about how uh, we're gonna talk in in a moment about how podcasts could be peer-reviewed, which is a very exciting topic today.
2: Yeah, yeah yes, yes, that is uh, uh, one of the big challenges that we are working on in our, in our project is how to peer-review non-traditional work. Um, the other significant context, and this feels important to me, is that academics, because it's part of our job, are not paid to publish elsewhere. Hmm. And so we produce the work, we do the peer reviewing, and all of that falls within the expectations of our regular jobs. Um, And I point to that because one of the really significant uh, ongoing debates happening in scholarly publishing right now is the question of open access publishing. Um, A lot of scholarly journals are paywalled, And you have to pay very expensive per article fees or journal subscription fees to gain access to them. And that is fairly wild considering that academics are producing that research for free, um, or rather, you know, are paid by their institutions, um, but are not, you know, paid by the journal. So are producing that research, are doing the peer reviewing, and then have to pay those journals, often tens of thousands of dollars a year, to gain access to their own work. Um, it's a bit of a racket, which is why a lot of academics right now are really interested in finding other ways to get our work out there.
0: And so, um, as you know, this this need to continue to publish to satisfy the university's desire for you to be a published, you know, doing your research and being published, mm-hmm. um, does that require being published in peer-reviewed publications? Yes,
2: Yes, it absolutely does. Um, We're starting to, within the university, expand our sense a little bit of what constitutes scholarly work. And those challenges are coming from different directions, including a sense of the need for scholarly work to be more publicly engaged. And so you'll start to see some academics who will publish, say, a trade book, which is what we call um, the books you might find on the shelf of a normal bookstore. Uh, Those are trade books as opposed to scholarly Scholarly books, and those won't be peer reviewed. And that might be considered to be part of an academic sort of larger portfolio of research that maybe you'll do something that's more publicly engaged and not necessarily peer reviewed. But at the end of the day, your job is to be a researcher. And for research to count as research, it has to be peer reviewed.
0: So with all that in mind, um, why are scholars starting to do podcasts?
2: I think that there's a lot of reasons. And we're still in fairly early days of even understanding how many different motivations scholars have for making podcasts. Because the reality is that scholars have been making podcasts as long as podcasts have existed, and have been really interested in the use of the format to sort of tell the stories of our research for a long time now. But because it hasn't been work that counts. And in fact, because there's often been a stigma attached to doing publicly engaged and accessible work as a scholar, we often do these podcasts in secret. We do them sort of off the side of our desks. We don't talk about them at conferences. We don't put them on our CVs. We don't use them to apply for tenure. And so there's hundreds, if not thousands of scholarly podcasts out there that People make them for all kinds of reasons. I think one big one is that people want to find, gain access to audiences beyond the traditional and extremely limited audiences for traditional scholarly publishing,
1: which are just other experts in your field. You know, I, it's an interesting thing to me because, you know, I'm acquainted with a lot of uh, uh, scholars. And for instance, we regularly have a professor of um, of media law, uh, Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota, on as a guest. And I know that he he definitely has his podcast guest appearances on his CV, right? Mm-hmm. And I and I know and and we're and a very having, weird podcast, Paul. Well, but it having <laughs> been a, well, but but certainly, I mean, any you know, and, and please correct me, Hannah, if I'm getting this wrong. I mean, any. Any professor or someone um, in that role will often, if they are interviewed, and that could be for a news article, it could be magazines, it could be radio, television, or podcasts, right? They will list that. I mean, it certainly doesn't stand in for their research accomplishments. It doesn't stand in for their publications. It kind of fills out this picture of, of you know, of that kind of engagement. And and But what's interesting to me, and I wonder, you know, if you think this is true, like there's this, the stigmas attached to having your own podcast, less maybe being on somebody else's, you know, and especially one that maybe uh, appears more legitimate because it's broadcast on radio or is produced by National Public Radio or a well-known um, you know, a well-known producer. It, it, am I getting that right? That 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 there's a little bit of a weird divide there? I
2: think so. I think you are right. I think being a guest on a podcast, like appearing on radio, like writing an op-ed is an opportunity to sort of as an expert in a particular field to, you know, step out a little bit and share your expertise with people. But it doesn't challenge that expert persona that a lot of academics are really attached to and there is something about making your own podcast you know particularly making a kind of amateur podcast or a weekly a regularly released podcast there's a little bit of, Failure involved in that. There's a little bit of vulnerability and riskiness yes. involved in that. And we're used to all of our work having like 17 layers of validation between us and the public. And so that's a really different way of doing things. It is also fun, which is, I think we can't like undercount that as a motivation either. Is that people who love doing this work and who want to like, you know, Hang out with some friends who also love it and just chat about ideas. You know, there's a pleasure component to it as well. But I think that that sense of it's pleasurable, it's informal, I like doing it, certainly for me, and I'm sure for a lot of other academics, that meant early on automatically it didn't count as
1: real work. <laughs> right. Like
2: real academic fun.
1: work is not fun. <laughs> right. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, in some ways podcasts to me are not unlike uh academic conferences. You know, a good panel can be fun, right? And and has and shares many features similar to to a podcast of of people trying to engage in a conversation for an audience, right? And as well uh in a way which which the ideas that they're discussing and 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 perhaps exploring more deeply, you know, requires uh, sort of bringing people in, if you will, right? And of course, at, a, at an academic conference, you can take a lot of things for granted in terms of the audience's familiarity with with the uh, with the subject matter and the discipline. But nevertheless, you know, you may be talking across different subspecialties, and, and you have to sometimes. Uh, do a little bit of that work to bring people in. I realize it doesn't always happen, but you know, Sometimes. I know, I know plenty of, of folks, you know, who who enjoy going to conferences because of the social aspect, because of the opportunity to do these things.
0: Well, yeah, um, the academic discourse is probably, you know, we have a few people in here who went to grad school, and you know, it's fun to have nerdy academic discussions, or else you wouldn't kind of take on that project of going to graduate
1: school, right? But it's interesting to me that, you know, the, the fact that podcasting would be fun and and, and I, I would guess it, it probably appears also more informal, right? Uh mm-hmm. because of at least, you know, in the in the in the sort of chat show way, you know, like we engage here, right, where it, it is discussion based, it's discursive, but it's not uh it's not we don't mostly don't pre write most of what we do, right? Um in yeah. the same way that maybe I wonder if you think that folks who who produce something that's more documentary like is that do you think that's taken more seriously g- g- compared to like uh, well, what, not okay, not more documentary like
3: but more you know more like a public radio interview as opposed to a uh No, I mean really documentary
1: like cuz I know folks who yeah. do this. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it depends on what discipline you're in um, and what kind of work you're doing. I know that, you know, radio studies exists as a field, sound studies exists as a field, and in those fields there there's a lot of respect for putting together really sophisticated, well-produced audio documentaries that, you know, create new knowledge about a subject area and at the same time are attending to how you can use sound to do something different than you could do in writing. At the same time, I've heard academics in other fields tell me that their colleagues treat well-produced audio with more suspicion than minimally produced audio. Because there is this kind of, in a lot of fields and in a lot of sort of cultures and academia, there's a suspicion of the well-produced, the professional looking, mm. because it looks like a thing journalists do. Or like Like a
3: discovery network documentary as opposed to a serious piece of Or I would think even
0: commercial might have hints of
3: commercial. Right,
0: exactly. Of something commercial.
2: A hundred percent. You see this aesthetically in in scholarly publishing all over the place, these journals that are so ugly. And that ugliness (laughs) isn't an accident. It's a deliberate aesthetic choice to say this is serious. You can tell because the type is unreadably small.
3: Hannah McGregor, can <laughs> you tell us tell us know. about your podcast that you started as an academic? So Five years spe-
2: ago. speaking of speaking of seriousness and unseriousness, the the podcast that I originally started with my collaborator Marcel Kosman is Which Please, which we started. We neither of us had tenure track jobs. She was a PhD candidate. I was a postdoctoral fellow. We started it purely for the pleasure of getting to hang out together and drink a bottle of wine and talk about Harry Potter. And Marcel was the person who first came up with the idea of turning it into a podcast. She had some experience with Campus Radio, which is very proud sort of entry point into podcasting for a lot of people. And so she did all of the audio production for the first nine months, and then she had a baby and I took over the audio production for the podcast, um, which involved a lot of Googling how to do things on Audacity and crying, which is a great way to learn how to do audio production. But which, Please was really, it started off very much as the two of us talking about a Harry Potter book in every episode. So very
3: much outside of a academic realm of project. Or, or was it? Were you approaching the topic in similar ways that you would approach your academic work.
0: Well, and I was also yeah. thinking, you know, you're, you're in pu- academic, you're in publishing, you're studying publishing, and you're doing a <laughs> podcast about yeah, good point. a book. So, yeah, how does yeah. all that intertwine?
2: Well, we were in English at the time. We were both in an English department. And so we thought we were making something non-academic, In retrospect, when I listen back to those early episodes, I don't think Marcel and I could have a non-academic conversation about a book if we tried. (laughs) We have spent you know, a decade learning how to read in a very particular way. So when we sit down to talk about Harry Potter, we're like, okay, well, obviously, you have to think about the feminist lens through which you're reading the text. Like, this is just what, what emerges out of us spontaneously. But it wasn't actually until a friend of ours who had just gotten a job at another university invited us to come and speak to his class that it occurred to us that what we were doing was scholarly at all. And it wasn't until I applied for a publishing studies job and tried to explain this goofy Harry Potter podcast as a like, coherent part of my academic narrative, that I actually started to articulate that maybe we were doing something interesting. And in a lot of ways, I think of Witch Please as a public teaching project. Because at the end of the day, what we're doing is using Harry Potter as an entry point into larger conversations we'd like to have with our listeners about queer theory and feminist theory and disability theory and you know like authorial intent and all of these ideas that we think are really uh interesting and and helpful if you want to be a a careful and critically aware reader but it wasn't until i became a publishing studies scholar that i actually sat down and thought to myself if i was going to make a scholarly podcast what would that sound like? And that's where Secret Feminist Agenda came
0: from. Oh, yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So I was a year into
2: my job in publishing studies and had really started to think about, particularly about feminist critiques of traditional forms of scholarly communication. Um, There are lots of feminist critiques of the way that scholarly publishing happens. One of those is absolutely how inaccessible it is. This idea that we're producing knowledge behind these walls and not you know, actually helping to mobilize it to communities that might be interested in it. Um, Another piece is this idea of traditional scholarly communication as needing to be really disembodied and authoritative and written in the third person always and just sort of taking the human out of it. And so I became really interested in how podcasting could particularly stage a feminist intervention into scholarly communication that's about putting... Mm -hmm the body back into work sort of via the voice as a as an instrument for carrying aspects of our embodiment putting the first person back in putting the personal back in um thinking about what it means to be vulnerable in the way you do scholarly work, to talk about failure, to be openly and publicly uncertain about complex ideas, rather than only talking about things once you've decided you totally understand them. And so the podcast became a space for me to try to enact those sort of critiques of conventional scholarly communication by making what was initially a weekly podcast where I would
0: have a conversation with an interesting feminist. And so this secret feminist agenda has become a big part of this whole idea of peer-reviewed podcasts. So can you explain mm-hmm. explain how that happened and also what a peer-reviewed podcast is, what it looks like? Yeah.
2: Yeah. We're kind of we're making it up still. Um How it happened is that not too long after I started making Secret Feminist Agenda, I applied for a grant with my colleague Siobhan McMenemy, who is the managing editor at Wilfrid Laurier University Press. And Siobhan and I had proposed to experiment with peer reviewing a podcast. We didn't know yet what that would look like. We just knew that if we wanted this work to count, both for me towards My career, but also for other people who might also want to experiment in scholarly podcasts, we had to figure out how to peer review them because it's got to be peer reviewed if it's going to count. And so we had this idea that we would create some sort of pilot podcast and we got the grant funding. And then Siobhan said, Well, why don't we just do Secret Feminist Agenda? You're making it already. You're passionate about it. That should be the podcast that we peer review. And so We agreed to make that our pilot project, but then immediately we had all of these wild new challenges because the more obvious way to peer review a podcast is to put it through the same kind of publishing workflow as you do a journal article or
3: a book. turns it it into text, basically.
2: More more in terms of, I mean, yes, text helps for sure, but more in terms of the order of operations, So I make a draft. You know, here's how this would hypothetically work. I would make a draft of a podcast episode. I would send it to my editor for feedback. She would get back to me. I would revise it. Once she said it was ready, we would send it out for peer review two or more experts in my field would listen to it, they would give me feedback. They'd probably tell me to revise and resubmit it. So I would revise it, and then I would send it back to them, and then they would listen again, and then they would say, yeah, okay, I think this is ready if you do these five additional things. And then at that point, roughly a year and a half has passed, and the podcast
3: episode is ready
2: to go public. Whoa. So, right. and
3: that- so revising in this <laughs> case means re-recording the interview?
2: I mean, who knows, because that's not what we did. Yeah, Or editing or something.
1: <laughs> Yeah. So what did and, you do?
0: Oh, <laughs> well, and I did. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm also sort of curious, like, maybe to just back up a second, if somebody is peer reviewing your journal article, for example, mm-hmm. you know, what are the sorts of things they might say versus when they're peer reviewing a podcast? And and are you think, were you thinking, I need to have podcast experts as well as experts in yeah. my field? And like, it if that be, seems
3: it confusing. It might be really It might be really useful also to help us, uh, the audience who is outside of the world of the academic world, um, how it's different than like, you know, online criticisms that we're used to.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things, traditional peer review. um, One, it would be fully anonymous. So we call it, we use the phrase double blind uh, in academia. So they don't know who you are and you don't know who they are. And they will give you feedback ranging from uh, you haven't engaged enough with these particular thinkers, or your thesis isn't clear, or, um, you know, the evidence you've provided doesn't actually arrive at the conclusion that you thought you were arriving at, you know, it could be massive structural issues, it could be small additions, you know, it really depends on on the state of the article. But a lot of the time as a writer, you're going back to the drawing board and rewriting the thing. And so in terms of podcasting, you know, it's hard for me to imagine what that feedback would look like because we didn't do it. Because what we did is decide to peer review a podcast that I was already making and publishing weekly. There were already like 12 episodes out when we decided it was going to be the thing that we peer reviewed. And And obviously, you're not
0: anonymous, too. (laughs) I'm super
2: not anonymous. It's extremely in my voice. Uh, So we decided that we were going to do after the fact peer review, that we were going to peer review it season by season. Mm. um, And that because it was already impossible to make me anonymous, that we were also not going to make the peer reviewers anonymous. And so this is where collaborating with a press really came in. Because they are very experienced at setting up peer review processes, and they're very good at setting them up in a way that is appropriate to the work. So Siobhan is the one who found my peer reviewers and the peer reviewers for the project have predominantly been feminist media scholars. So scholars who are really engaged in the question of like where feminism and media intersect and change the way that we tell stories, change the way we think about authoritative knowledge, change the way we think about evidence, um, those kinds of ideas. And then Siobhan developed a peer review questionnaire for them that was very specific to this project that asked questions about format, about content, um, as well as meta questions like Do you think podcasts should be peer-reviewed? Do you think a podcast can make a scholarly contribution? Because it was, I mean, it was a grant-funded project. So we were exploring, you know, we were finding out, is this anything? Are we going to send this off to the peer reviewers and they're going to come back and say like, no, this is nothing. Stop doing it. It's ridiculous.
0: And how are, um, what did the peer reviewers think when it was proposed that they peer-review a podcast initially? Were they excited about it? Were they dubious? Yeah, I mean,
2: I the, the peer reviewers that we found were a mix of people who were uh, extremely invested in the project from the beginning and very excited about the potential, and people who were deeply skeptical about the whole idea of it. And that's a useful balance, right? You want some people who are really on board and see what you're trying to do, and you want some people who aren't necessarily convinced. Um, and that's how you get sort of a nice range of feedback. And That first round for season one, the feedback we heard was that people really felt like the podcast was adding something significant into the scholarly landscape, but that it was extremely difficult to cleanly qualify it as research. Mm -hmm. And that has been a continuing interesting challenge for us is that in the university, we divide all of our work into three categories. It's research or it's teaching or it's service. Mm -hmm. And an important thing to know is that those categories are not equal. There is a hierarchy. Research is the top. It's the most important. It's what the university uh, rewards most actively. Teaching comes second. You'd think it would come first because it's our major job, but it doesn't. It comes second. And then service is right at the bottom. And... Podca- a podcast like mine that is kind of knowledge mobilization and kind of research and kind of like creating a speaker series and kind of like publishing a book like it's hard to categorize and that has been one of our, our big challenges for this project is like what category do you put this work into and maybe could we possibly break those categories is that allowed <laughs> could we just throw them out
0: so at right. the end of that, at the end of that peer review, did you then cr- decide to create this network of podcasts? Is, is anybody else attempting to make a peer-reviewed podcast? It does sound very complicated.
2: Yeah. So we've taken what we've learned from making Secret Feminist Agenda and from doing three rounds of peer review on it and getting lots of feedback from from various experts, and then also just the sort of wider feedback that we get from listeners and from other podcasters who just, you know, engage with the podcast, is this next project, we're, we're building the Amplify podcast network. And what that is going to do is add three additional podcasts into the network, created by other scholars that are going to take different approaches to the peer review process. So, with these podcasts, we are going to do advanced peer review rather than post-publication peer review, and we're going to conceive of the podcasts as short-run mini-series rather than ongoing and continuing serial podcasts. Because um, uh, ongoing and continuing serial podcasts is extremely hard to make when you are a full-time professor.
1: You know, I mean, I think there's real parallels in the way that. I mean media is actually produced in that way, right, or let's just even say podcasts in particular, because certainly there is a difference between a program like serial and you know the uh, the slate gap fest right mm-hmm. um serial you know is a documentary i mean it's journalistic but it's a it's a it is a documentary podcast um it it is thoroughly edited. It is thoroughly, at least internally reviewed within the organization in which it's made. Um, it is fact checked, right? As 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 would uh, say a a feature uh, reported piece in the New Yorker would be, and then mm-hmm. often many many even popular press books are are fact checked. Um, versus the Slate Gabfest, which you know weekly, talking you know knowledgeable people talking about things that they have knowledge about. Uh, probably goes through, you know, enough editing to get it out the door. But, you know, not so much editing uh, that things, you know, if, if you need to correct something, it's going to be corrected next week, right? <laughs> you're, if you need to walk something back, or you need to to say something more about it, it happens yes. next week. And and so it seems to me, you know, a little bit in a way, right, that the, you're sort of inserting the peer review process into that normal production stage of of if it was a serial Podcast essentially write a series podcast, but what what you're changing is is who who does that reviewing, right? You know, often you know if it's a production team, it's within that production team. It's probably rare, though not unheard of, that you would engage somebody from outside of your production team. You might because you want to get a second opinion. You're trying to figure out an edit. You know, you need someone to kind of give you a little bit of hint, but it's not in the same sort of. um validity check i don't know the right way to put it right uh yeah. that that it seems like uh sort of a, a peer review uh process w- w- would would entail right and then i guess you know in that way that it's a similar parallel to um to that uh trade book versus a scholarly book right the scholarly book will go through that peer review process the trade book will still be edited there will be an editor assigned uh but that that editing maybe uh is of a different sort does, does this parallel make sense to you
2: it really does. It really does. And essentially what we're doing right now is helping those those podcasters for these three new podcasting projects put together their teams. So mm-hmm. part of putting together a production team is that we are actually going to support people finding and working with producers, which I haven't previously for my own podcast. You know, I made Secret Feminist Agenda myself. Um and so, you know, we're we're setting people up with producers. We've got a supervising producer, Stacey Copeland, who is helping to sort of manage the network as a whole. Um, and you can absolutely think about the peer reviewers as part of that production team. That's just a stage in what podcasting production will look like for scholarly podcasts. And at the same time, I, I you know, I want to hold on to the idea that academics like can and should make Weird, shaggy, informal weekly podcasts. That there's that there's something in that as well that's really beneficial. But they're so much harder to figure out how to count.
3: Can you right. can you talk about why that's beneficial to, to 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 speak out loud into microphones on a weekly basis informally? How does that benefit your academic work?
2: Yeah, I think that those weekly chatty, or you know, weekly or fortnightly chatty podcasts do things well. That are different from what sort of extremely well produced short run documentary series do well, which is to say that they gather engaged publics around them through the fact that they are released regularly and predictably in this serial fashion, um, that people become sort of committed listeners who know when the new episode's coming out. Uh, They give feedback, they engage, they start to participate in this community of discourse that surrounds the podcast. That's what makes podcasting a pretty unique medium in 2020. Like, what other actual serial media do we still engage with that isn't sound based? Like TV's all Netflix series that are released simultaneously, and we expect everything to be on demand and streamed. But here we are, you know,
3: patiently waiting until Monday morning for our new podcast episodes to drop. Right, and those things are being yeah, but- created in real time in the minds of the hosts and guests for consumption by the audience this pretty the same week. Everything's coming yeah. out. Um, much more simultaneously than so
2: they're timely and responsive in a way that is hard to do with other stuff right you release an episode you somebody has feedback or critique or a response and you can engage that right away and bring it into the next episode and that's hard to do as an academic
0: um Hannah it's making me think about a lot of these things you're talking about, I've heard people mention public scholarship and, mm-hmm. you know, talking to regular people about your work. And and that real-time element makes me think of what I've been seeing on Twitter lately among academics who are also using social media as a way to kind of talk about their ongoing research. Um, and some people are developing pretty massive followings on social media tweeting about academic subjects, which I think is interesting. Maybe talk about that connection a little bit.
2: I absolutely think about podcasting as part of the larger landscape of publicly engaged scholarship, for sure. Um, for me, that form of podcasting, that kind of you know regular, informal, publicly engaged mode um, has a lot to do with blogging. In that sense, podcasting is a lot like audio blogging. It's kind of regular and informal and vulnerable and process-based. And, and there's a proud tradition of scholarly blogging as well that, that has faced a lot of the same challenges mm-hmm. that podcasting has in the sense that it's work that can really engage audiences and really help to mobilize ideas outside of the university. And that is really hard to figure out how to count according to how we count our work. And social media absolutely falls into that as well. And you see so many examples of just brilliant publicly engaged scholars like Tressie McMillan-Cottom is one of my absolute favorite Twitter follows. Um, And she is this great example of somebody who is... Like a rock star public scholar who has published a trade book of essays, who makes a podcast, who engages people on social media, and who is using all of these platforms because she thinks that her work is like urgent and timely. And she wants people to know about it who aren't, you know, the 20 people who are going to be in the room at a conference presentation. And we've got, you know, beautiful examples of people really figuring out that if you are a good communicator and you know how to tell the story of your work in a way that engages people, then you can find lots of possibilities for audiences outside of that, you know, that traditional academic audience. It's it's so unfortunate that the
0: university doesn't always recognize that. I mean, especially as you're talking about some of these things that are urgent and important for the public at large to engage with, um, that must be so frustrating. Yeah, yeah, it's a,
2: a colleague of mine, Juan Pablo Alperin, did a, a research study, I think just last year, looking at the tenure and promotion documents at universities across North America. So these are the documents where you spell out what people need, what academics need to do to get tenure, which is, you know, what what hypothetically we're all working towards. Uh, if we were lucky enough to get hired into a tenure track job in the first place. And what he noted is that while lots of universities talk about public engagement as being one of their priorities, publicly engaged scholarship almost never appears in tenure and promotion documents. So hypothetically we care, but in practice, it's largely not rewarded. And I think a big part of that is that as universities have systematically become less and less publicly funded and more and more privately funded, funded by tuition, funded by grants, the whole sense of the public mission of the university has been eroded. So, this sense that the whole point of what we're doing is creating knowledge, which is a public good and by all rights belongs to the public is disintegrating because at the end of the day the bottom line of the university has less and less to do with any sense of public support for what we're doing and more and more to do with can i partner with industry uh can i get a patent on something i've created can i get a big grant
1: can i attract students
2: to come work with me
1: you know i i i, would, I keep looking for historical parallels here right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially with regard to scholarship, because, you know, I, I think part of publicly engaged scholarship is both the sharing of knowledge, but should also be the the synthesis of fresh knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. It seems to me. And, you know, much of public scholarship in the past has often been about public debate, which, you know, may be between scholars, but done so in in a in a realm which is more public rather than private um you know whether it's uh you know uh Foucault and, and Noam Chomsky going at it you know on french television or you know sometimes these things would happen in in, in the letters to the, you know to a new york review of books or the letters in, in a scholarly journal and in these letters often um you know, in some cases, in the development of of particular schools of thought, especially I think in the latter half of the 20th century, often were pivotal in 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 the emergence of 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 new disciplines in, around cultural studies and such, where especially new disciplines that were fighting for recognition or fighting, you know, um, in in some ways, you know, were were opposed to an old older order, you know, and I don't know. You know, it seems to me that probably none of that ever counted to someone's tenure either, right? <laughs> um, I you mean, know, it, back
2: in back in those days, it was just men who had gotten jobs yes. because their supervisor with friends with the chair of the department and they just got tenure
1: automatically. Like they Certainly published in like, one article. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and less so in 1995. Um, you know, but I, I, I also see this, you know, a parallel of how because it's it's it is so disc, it can be so discursive you know podcasting can be can serve that role as well whether it's you know within the within a podcast itself right whether it's you know inviting on uh peer scholars to work out particular issues and 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 figure things out and, and but it can also i mean I, I certainly you know in in the way that social media is it seems to me that a podcast can also be interdiscursive as well Right, mm-hmm. where where you have you know podcasts answering each other. I mean, we 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 see that to some extent in podcasting, uh, informally I think. But you know, where you know you can sort of take up the ideas of somebody else's podcast, <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. you know, it, it critically, you know, and not just you know not critically from the standpoint of, of really trying to assess and uh, and pull apart and, and recombine not critically just you know just being a troll right <laughs> which yeah. which too often i think you know in, in conventionally and especially in social media there's a lot of right. um, well
3: a troll a or of, a fan of, either either right, binary right. but neither one is as useful
1: Right right, because yeah. too often you know too often uh criticism is you know is mistaken for canceling for whatever you know versus you know trying to actually work out and and maybe perhaps uh you know which is what you know again part of that peer peer review process at the very least. Is dedicated to so so I I you know I'm curious what you see then you know in 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 terms of of a podcast or podcasting's role in public scholarship like what are what are some of the jobs it can do then?
2: Yeah, I mean it can certainly reproduce that sort of uh, discursive or or dialogic nature of a lot of scholarly communication. Like we look back to the very very earliest origins of scholarly communication. I mean it was lectures. Was the original form that scholarship took, um, so there is the sort of proud oral tradition of of scholarly communication. But we can also look back to some of the earliest scholarly publishing and note that it really was about um, capturing like scholars were already sending each other letters, and mm-hmm. working through a lot of ideas via correspondence, like that was the sort of major um, transformation in the Enlightenment was this idea that that people would send each other letters and work through ideas together. And then people started gathering those letters into volumes and publishing them. Uh, and that's where we get sort of one of the earliest, you know, it's the, the the history of the scholarly journal can really be rooted back to that. And so In terms of understanding that one of the origins of scholarly communication is creation of a forum in which scholars can talk to each other to work through and better understand a tricky idea. I think podcasting does a beautiful job of pulling out that particular thread and providing a space where we can just like sit down together and just talk
3: through something really complicated. Hannah Hannah McGregor, you... Uh, you are an assistant professor of publishing at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, B.C., and you've also had podcasts that were both academic and informal, but they're your podcasts, so they're, they're going to be academic no matter what. But can you give us an example of one of your podcasts um, revealing that uh, truth to you as the host and as the person on the microphone? When did, when did your podcast sort of grow your understanding of a topic you were studying? I mean, all all the time and constantly. Uh, The
2: first experience of learning this for me was making Witch Please and the process of sitting down with Marcel and talking through what we had both noticed in the Harry Potter book that we were reading and arriving through the process of conversation at an understanding of a particular scene that neither of us had arrived at independently, But we talked about it together and talked through the things that we had realized. And then the sum of our knowledge was greater, you know, greater than the sum of its parts. Um, And that for me, the, the process of interviewing people on secret feminist agenda has been that process over and over and over again of sitting down with someone and weaving my knowledge together with theirs and learning something new through talking about it. I mean, I could give you... Really specific examples, but I suspect that they might be wildly no, boring best. out well, of context
3: I, I wonder though I have a genuine question then, why is that discovery that you're engaging in when you sit down on your um, secret feminist agenda podcast and talk to someone you're excited to talk to and discover and together you and the you know the host and the guest discover new ideas that were no were not present before the podcast was recorded something very you know important to me as the person who does this work why is that mm-hmm. not equal to the kinds of research that you were talking about earlier what why is that valued less in the academic world
2: because we don't have any currently existing metrics for measuring it really at the end of the day um as uh, as universities the world over have gotten increasingly sort of absorbed into the capitalist logics of a lot of other kinds of institutions, we have come to rely more and more on metrics, uh, on ways that we can just count what makes scholarship good and what makes scholarship bad? You know, in the sciences, those metrics have gotten in a lot of ways really conservative. You know, it's citation numbers, and that's it. Like, you can you can prove your impact. You've got a score that says how good a scholar you are, and you are expected to include that score on wow. your CV, and that is what makes you matter or not matter. And guess what? Google Scholar will produce your score for you. And it tells you how much you matter. And it's calculated by how prestigious the journals you're publishing in are and how many people cite your articles. And that's it. Um, and so the more we come to rely on these like very sort of conservative metrics, the harder it is to have a more um, sort of open, capacious, flexible understanding of the value of creating new knowledge in non-traditional ways, which is really at the heart of this project for me is sort of pushing against that conservative desire to have all knowledge fit into these tidy little sort of metrics and matrices and instead say like, you know, not only is it important that we have lots and lots and lots of different formats and venues where we are creating and sharing knowledge, but also it is important As academics, that we critique the very restriction of what we think counts as real knowledge creation. It's very
3: funny because what resonates resonates with me with that one is uh, just very quickly that in the world of podcasting, we also have scores and points that we measure the value of our work by, and that you know it the 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 number of listeners, the amount uh, you're you're ranking on a certain um, apps charts are not always uh, equal to the personal value of the project. It's capitalist.
2: (laughs) It is capitalist. And I say this about, um, as we discuss ways that we can think about counting scholarly podcasts, which is an ongoing conversation, whenever... I I think that there is a temptation to point to download numbers because they're so much higher for even the most (laughs) trifling academic podcast. They're still so much higher than citation numbers. That's funny. one person might cite your article, and even if you have a tiny podcast and, like, 50 people listen, it's still so much better. But I i, I want us all to collectively resist those numbers because mm-hmm. any metric by which Joe Rogan is the best at podcasting is a bad metric.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's something that's been a bit of a... a- a hobby horse of mine, certainly as Eric knows, as someone who's been in around podcasting uh, since the beginning. And, you know, currently I work in commercial podcasting. I mean, that is my day job is in commercial podcasting. And, you know, it it is, it is critically important. I think to me to, to keep that spirit of, of independent podcasting and community podcasting in the same way as it is with campus radio and community radio, where, uh, you know, The simple fact that you might still be able to talk to 50 people a week in this way is still rarefied air in a lot of ways and and would have been something, you know, if we go back uh, to, you know, pre 2003 was much more difficult to accomplish, really, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, again, if you were a professor who had a lecture course, so you might be teaching, you may be speaking to 50 people a week. But again, a, a fairly rarefied experience, all things considered. And and. Different, of course, than, than doing a podcast, you know, more like doing radio, you know, the podcast mm-hmm. is. And again, something which, you know, many people fought hard and, and, and dedicated lots and lots of effort historically to open up the airwaves so that somebody who wasn't a professional broadcaster and hadn't uh, had to go through many, many gatekeepers to be able to speak on the radio. To something like fifty people or or more, but some, often very very truly just fifty people, you know. And and to retain the, the, the I think the sense of wonder and the privilege that it is to be able to do this, but also to maintain that ability and and to defend it at that that um you know that it is valid because certainly and and please correct me if you think I'm wrong, Hannah. Uh, it is very possible that you know somebody can publish a scholarly article in in a journal and publish a podcast. And there's a good chance more people will hear their podcast and will actually read that article in a year.
2: Yeah, yeah, like, um, almost undoubted, it would be very <laughs> surprising if it turned out the opposite way. Um, you know, the average citation number and citations are not synonymous with reading, right? People read articles that they don't cite. But we have a hard time tracking that. And so citations are often our, our fallback. And the average number of times that a humanities article is cited,
1: is zero. <laughs> right. <laughs> like and, 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 and so just... even if we say that, that, you know, well, we can't multiply by zero, but even if we say that, you know, some <laughs> greater number than, that people, than, than those people read it, nevertheless, they're not huge numbers. And again, I don't want to say that there's no value in those articles because often the value of them in, in, in future scholarship is unknown at the time of publication. And yes. I think the same is true of, of, of a podcast that th- – th- and, and this is what I think is going – we're going to see increasingly be true provided podcasts are properly archived, which at least people are working on, is that, you know, being able to go Me, back I'm and say – Yeah, I'm working on that. Are you? Wonderful. <laughs> So yeah. that's another big part of the Amplify
2: Podcast Network project is that we're developing digital preservation standards for scholarly podcasts so that they'll be discoverable through library catalogs.
1: Wonderful. Let's let's take that let's take that quick digression because it's more important than what I was gonna say. Um Yeah, and that's something that, that we
0: that... we've been interested in on Radio Survivor is preservation. We've talked a little bit about projects to preserve podcasts. The Library of Congress is starting to preserve pro- podcasts. Um and we've talked to a lot of folks about preserving radio. And, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, how, how will you preserve academic podcasts?
2: Well, right now we're using the model of the institutional repository, which is essentially a place where any academic affiliated with a particular institution can put their work and are, in fact, encouraged to put their work because you can put preprints of articles there. And then even if you've published your article in a paywalled journal, um, institutional repositories are openly accessible. So you can go and read people's preprints there for free. Um, And so the institutional repository at the end of the day is like a chunk of server space that the university has committed to maintaining that, you know, a team of extremely skilled librarians are ensuring has longevity um, with some metadata on top of it that makes things findable. And so, you know, we're using the best practices already in place with things like institutional repositories, um, developing some sort of consistent language to make sure that we're saving the information we want to save. So, you know, do you make sure that all of the guests are listed? Do you make sure that the show notes are saved? Do you make sure to save uh, photographs that might be, you know, images that might be attached to the show notes? You know, what needs to be preserved? Um, and then where possible, can we get a WAV file for this podcast? <laughs> a high quality that file. Is, that is the archival standard for audio is WAV files, whereas podcasts are released as MP3s. Um, and MP3s are not, great file formats, but WAV files take up a lot of space. So we're working through that as well.
0: Hannah, I'm curious. So if it's in the the official repository, does that then help you in your justification that this is academic work? This is scholarly work? Um, Is that part of the agenda there too, maybe? It's definitely part of the
2: sort of larger infrastructure we're trying to build through the project. So the Amplify Podcast Network is not just about creating new scholarly podcasts, it's also about sort of building around scholarly podcasting, the kind of infrastructure that will help to solve the problem of how we make this work count. And so one way to do that is to get the podcasts living in places where scholarship lives to make them discoverable and citable so that they start to become part of the sort of ecosystem of scholarly knowledge. Um, That's one piece of it for sure. Um, You know, there there are other pieces of the project as well, including just kind of like a having conversations with people who are in positions in scholarly publishing and in universities to change how things are counted you know yeah. part of it is just talking to people
0: along those lines are do you have examples of other forms of i don't know if it's new media like blogs do you have other examples of of places where academics have done work that they've struggled to kind of um struggled to have it included in that bucket of things that count as scholarship.
2: There are lots of great examples. One of the obvious places a lot of this work comes out of is the field of digital humanities, where there's a lot of um, tool development um like building a tool that might help people do like literary analysis of a large text corpus um or maybe like creating a really good um rigorous scholarly digital archive of some particular scholar's work and you know that doesn't look like a journal article but it still matters so so conversations are happening there Uh, My favorite most recent example is that the University of Michigan Press just released the first ever peer-reviewed rap album,
0: which is, I think, (laughs) such...
2: Yeah, it's the album is called I Used to Love to Dream. Uh it's by A.D. Carson. Uh and it was just released as a, an extension of his his dissertation. He created a a dissertation album um and then, you know, had to find a press that would work with him to publish this mm-hmm. really really unconventional form of scholarship. But that idea, I think particularly for those of us who work on culture like radio scholars, film scholars, music scholars that were sort of really interested in like well instead of always having to write an article about the thing, like could I create my scholarship in a format that is more suitable to my actual object of study?
1: Well, I wanted to ask you about that because and I used to I used to work in a film school and I did so as staff, but but you know but at Northwestern University, so I was actually on staff as as the radio station advisor. But you know, I worked commonly with faculty who, whose work was to develop screenplays or to develop works of multimedia art and plays and 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 such, right? Um, and yeah, thinking and I about often, visual
0: artists, all kinds of artists. Right. I mean, often yes. they, they
1: came more from an M, they had an MFA as a background, but there are also PhDs in the mix, right? And and you know, and certainly some folks in school you know worked more in in the realm of criticism worked more, more in the realm of traditional written scholarship but others you know their their films essentially counted as theses you know and yeah. and it certainly seems to me why why can't a, a podcast uh sit beside you know a, a 15 minute short film or a feature length film for that matter
2: yeah yeah and depending on the field you work in you know i i think in places like Australia, where radio studies is more of a going concern, as a scholarly field, you have more examples of people who are sort of practiced based radio studies scholars, who the work that they do is they produce, you know, radio documentaries that they don't attempt to get them peer reviewed by other scholars, they consider the fact that they, you know, win awards and are um, well regarded by their peers in the world of sound production, you know, that's the peer review for them. In the same way that, you know, I have colleagues in my publishing department who are book designers and hmm. editors, and they, you know, part of their job is to Uh, continue to maintain a practice in their fields so that they continue to be effective and up-to-date teachers of that subject matter. And so the idea of sort of practice-based positions in the university absolutely exist and and are hypothetically a viable model for thinking about the work of podcasting. Where that gets tricky is when you're somebody like me who is not a radio scholar (laughs) And who who absolutely cannot, you know, legitimize my podcasting work as a kind of uh, you know, I'm doing the practice of my field. Um, you know, I have to I have to come up with another way to, to convince people it's real.
3: And is there another way? Is talking to another person about about the academic subject you're passionate about? In your case I'm I'm I wanna say feminism, not uh harry potter but you can choose either one feminism Um, yeah it's the one is uh how do you justify that
2: i mean i mean in various ways by getting grants to support the process of getting my podcast peer-reviewed um but also by trying to figure out ways to Um, demonstrate the impact to demonstrate that the work that I am doing is contributing meaningfully to knowledge on the topic that I am researching. Um, I am (laughs) going up for tenure next year. So I'm about to really just take a deep dive into the question of how I justify this (laughs) 100% grapple with that, with that very thing. Um, But really, At the end of the day, what we are trying to do with the Amplify Podcast Network is start to establish podcasting to the extent that every scholar who wants to make a podcast doesn't have to do double duty, then also convincing people that their podcast should count in the first place. And there's a very, for me, there's a very particular this will surprise nobody who knows me. There's a very particular political reason why I care very deeply about this. And that is, we know that the university has traditionally been um, a far from inclusive space, right? As institutions until very, very recently, they were run by and for white men, and really was only in the sort of 60s and 70s that they started opening up. Um and and in recent years, there's been massive calls for uh, deliberately more inclusive hiring, right? The, um, the actual representativeness of faculty in no way mirrors the demographic of students at this point, um, that as more diverse students are gaining access to post-secondary education, they are not seeing themselves in their professors. And one of the reasons, there are many reasons for this, but one of the reasons is that scholars from minoritized backgrounds, queer scholars, disabled scholars, BIPOC scholars, um, tend to come into the university with a sense of commitment to publics outside of academia. Um, we've got lots of examples in Canada of Indigenous scholars who come into university with a desire to do community-engaged work that serves their communities and a deep disinterest in doing work that, you know, fits the conventional model of a scholarly career. Because, like, why would I want to serve the settler colonial state? Like, I want to do work for my community. I want to do work that helps my community. And when non-traditional work, when publicly accessible work doesn't count, that means those scholars have to do twice the job. They have to publish all of the traditional peer reviewed publications. And then they also have to do the community engaged work that by the way, the university is happy to go to town on like, you know, getting a media cycle out of that cool experimental work, and maybe is a little less happy to like, count it. And so what you see happening all over the place, is that um, particularly, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color, queer, disabled scholars, um, there were commas between those things. Not one person who is 100% of those things Um, burn out so fast because they come in, to this new job, and are all of a sudden expected to be two people simultaneously, at Mm -hmm. least, without even counting the fact that racialized faculty always do way more service, always have a way higher number of students asking for help, asking to be supervised, because again, student bodies are diverse and faculty are not. And so if there's, you know, like 50 black students in a particular faculty and one actual black professor, you know, they're gonna get called on to supervise a lot more than the many, many white faculty. And so it's an equity issue, this question of letting community engaged scholarship matter. And so for me, it's really important that the work I do to justify secret feminist agenda can't just be about making it count for me. It can't just be about convincing people that my particular podcast is real work. It has to contribute to a larger project of making a wider range of scholarly contributions count so that we can actually change the face of what academia looks like.
0: That's probably a great place to end our conversation. Hannah McGregor, I the impact of, of this work is really profound, and I appreciate you coming on the show to talk to us today. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.
3: Dear listener, of course, that was the ending of uh, our radio program interview, but here's uh, extra podcasting content.
0: I know, I know that you just ended Secret Feminist Agenda, so I, I just wanted to ask you about that um, and what it means to end that project.
2: It was a really hard move to make. I remember in the very first round of peer review on season one, uh, one of my peer peer reviewers said, uh, you have to think about an exit strategy for this project Hmm. because it is a massive amount of work and you cannot sustain it indefinitely. And so you need to figure out how you're going to know it is done. And so at that point, I made the decision to make three seasons and we made the decision that it was going to we were going to peer review three seasons Um, and that was going to be sort of the arc of the project. And once we'd finished peer reviewing the third season, we would declare the podcast peer reviewed and move on with our lives. And then we finished season three and I was like, no, I still really like making this podcast. So I just made a fourth season (laughs) and the fourth season won't be peer reviewed. Uh, It was made purely because I still felt really excited and passionate about the project. And then what happened midway through the fourth season is, uh, one, we got the Amplify grant, and I became the co-director of a new, significantly sized research project. Uh, Two, Marcel and I made the decision to reboot Witch, Please, um, and return to regular ongoing production of that. And three, I started writing a book, a scholarly book. And when I added those three things into my workload, it became clear that I couldn't keep making secret feminist agenda.
0: And these are all extra things beyond your job, I might point out. I mean they're
2: part Mm. of my job. (laughs)
0: Right? Like they you know, they they
2: are my job. Like this is my job is to do research and those are all kind of, kind of my research, you know, in addition to that, I teach. And then in addition to that, I have various service obligations, you know, I'm the graduate program chair in my department right now. So, so you know, academia every, every academic has five too many projects. Um, and that's just kind of how we roll for the most part. But it became clear to me at one point, that this project that was originally motivated by pleasure, by the joy of getting to have these conversations, had become a chore, like just a thing I had to do. And when I realized that I didn't love it anymore, I knew I had to stop making it. And that was also very hard to do because it has built a following around it. There is a community of listeners and there is a community of listeners who have made it very clear to me that like. The podcast has been really important for their mental health, that, you know, it's one of the things that they really look forward to, that they structure their lives around it. And I get it. Because some of my favorite podcasts, if they stopped production tomorrow, I would be devastated. You know, they really weave their way into the texture of your life. And so it felt, on the one hand, like, such a necessary boundary to set. And on the other hand, like a very, very hard goodbye.
0: That human impact. Yeah, yeah. that human yeah. impact is so powerful. I think, you know, throughout this conversation, that's what saddens me about the institution not, you know, not being able to quantify that human impact that things have.
2: Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and I don't know how we would even begin to do that because Lots of things have human impact. And sometimes that impact is horrifying. Like, you know who the most successful, like in terms of numbers and demonstrated emotional attachment, who the most impactful public scholar is? It's Jordan Peterson. Hmm. He has had a massive impact on many, many people. I would say his impact is extremely harmful and that he primarily uses his platform to propagate ideas that have real and terrible consequences for the lives of extremely vulnerable people. But people love him. So even if we if we switch the metric from like, okay, Mm -hmm. well, it's not it's not going to be about, you know, this particular idea of impact. It's going to be about emotional impact. Like... You can't,
3: well, you can't create a metric without – you need ideology. You need right, values. You
2: need ideology.
1: <laughs> you need but values. That's why I
2: think – You need values. That, yeah. yeah. And that's a tricky thing because values could butt up against academic freedom very, very right. quickly. Very quickly. Right. But we right? have lines. We're, we're not you know, values-driven we, institutions. There are lines. Right.
3: And we draw them. There are values. You know, anti-Semitism, Nazis, we drew that line. <laughs> and for the best. So, well, it seems like, you know, it like seems we like we kind to of some draw extent. that line. Yeah. Thank you.
2: <laughs> like, do uh, we draw that line in every classroom? I'm not, con- uh, I wouldn't be confident saying that there's nobody in a university right now who is using the captive audience of their faculty to argue that maybe Nazis had a good
3: idea. Yeah. Yeah. Ten years ago, I, the line was, was uh, more bold. Seems, now it's fuzzier.
1: Although yeah. when I was at Northwestern, there was a, a you know, an active Holocaust denier. Um, he was a physicist. Right. So as long as he supposedly kept his Holocaust denying out of the physics classroom, um, but he was an active Holocaust denier. But I think, you know, if I dial this, you know, look back to to what sounds like a lot of your program is, it's sort of building. Ultimately, you're building a consensus, it sounds like to me. Right. Within 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 a peer group of, of like minded academics. Right. And that's it seems to me this is is slow and is sometimes you know still riddled with all sorts of power relations that are very unequal right that is a bit of how scholarship develops right it's at least one element of the process i i, I would not want to make the case that it was the primary element because you do have unequal power because you do have de- you know you have faculty who have more power you have department chairs you have presidents you have boards yeah. of trustees and every all these other people who 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 uh are hard to convince to change their minds about things and, and but the, step away I, from know- the established order
2: at the end of the day, the ideal of the university is that we are an institution that is self-governed and self-administered. And Mm -hmm. unlike, you know, hospitals, for example, where at some point doctors made the decision to sort of outsource the administration of hospitals and and maybe some people working in medicine regret that decision because now there's sort of this, this administrative body with different priorities. The point, the ideal at the university is that we are self-administered and self-run. And so our, what we care about as scholars should sort of set the agenda. Um, And and that, even if that's not actually how things work in practice, um, the fact that that's the idea, that that's sort of the, Mm. the shared premise that we're all
1: operating under, It can be a starting point, right? It can be a a point of leverage. It's still right. I do I still think you can you can try to at least attempt to hold people accountable to the ideas that are that are written into sort of the Constitution, if you will, or or at least written into the ideology, even if not always uh, firmly attended to in practice. Uh, Hannah, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for taking some time for this. I hope we get to follow up here. I think we'd like to hear uh, progress oh, y- on on this project. yeah, or, on no and, everyth- uh, and, and so on. Oh,
0: yeah, and there are things yeah. we didn't get to, like the spoken the spoken web podcast. So that could be a whole Do other a episode.
2: Whole other episode about the spoken web podcast because it is a totally different kind of project. And I think it's really
3: cool. Well, thank you again. so much. To our guest today, Hannah McGregor, co-director of the Amplify Podcast Network and assistant professor of publishing at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, Jennifer Waits produced today's episode and was the co-host. My name is Eric Klein. I am Paul Reismandel, who was also co-host of today's episode of Radio Survivor. You can find this podcast as well as our previous episodes online at radiosurvivor.com or you can subscribe the show wherever you get your podcasts you can email the show our address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com the project is a listener and reader supported enterprise to find out more how, about how you can strengthen the work you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support thank you so much for listening we'll see you next week